podcast is brought to you by StealthyNutrition.com. At Stealthy Nutrition, we have a wide range of CBD and non-CBD products that address things like inflammation, antioxidant support, gut support, and hormonal health. Also, the CBD products, we are the first ones in the hunting industry to bring you high-quality CBD products that you can use for sleep, pain, inflammation, you name it. Um, We also have great non-CBD products, and one of my favorites is the Immune Support Probiotic. This probiotic is part of our gut restoration program. Um, You can also buy it singly, and it's something that I take every single night. So why do I take my probiotics at night? I take them at night because I like to um, have my stomach not be totally full of food. And then when I go to sleep, this probiotic goes in and basically inoculates my gut while I'm sleeping. So um, that's when I like to take my probiotic. Now, our probiotic is very different than a lot of other probiotics. One, it's dairy-free. And two, it comes from soil. So it's spore-based, and that means it's going to be pretty hypoallergenic for most people. If you have a dairy allergy, you really want to be careful where you're getting your probiotics from. Um, And just like our bone broth protein plus uh, powder, you know, that's made from bone broth, it's not made from dairy. A lot of people that are very sensitive can do well with that. This is exact same with our immune support probiotic. Now, we have five different strains of bacillus in here. And you may be asking, what is bacillus? So bacillus is um, vital to the food chain. And they have the intrinsic ability to produce a multitude of enzymes, proteins, antimicrobial compounds, vitamins, and carotenoids in the body. And... um, These spore base are found in dirt and vegetation, and they basically surround themselves with a durable coat of protein, and that allows them to survive in hostile environments. And so you can imagine the GI tract is a very hostile environment. The first thing it has to go through is your stomach acid in your stomach. And we want these probiotics to actually get to your colon. And so by using the spore-based probiotic with this um, durable coat of protein, it allows it to get through that hostile GI tract uh, to where it needs to go. The other reason that I like to take this immune support probiotic is that it helps improve immune function and it supports healthy inflammatory processes. And I am a menopausal woman. um, And I know a lot of you guys out there who have middle-aged women who are going through perimenopause or menopause, the gut microbiome gets sort of messed up during these hormonal uh, fluctuations. And so uh, women of our age really benefit from a good probiotic. And so I've noticed that since I've been taking this probiotic and being consistent about it, yes, I am like everybody else. I'm not very consistent. um, I definitely have much improved gut health. And so I'm religious um, about taking this. Um, You can also consider taking this with our Cryl Omega, with the Acetaxin, maybe our Turmeric Plus, um, to help with inflammation. And of course, if you want to do the gut restoration program, it is included in that program, which is on our website for free. You can download that and you can get these products. Again, go to stealthyhunter.com. You'll see under the supplements tab, you'll see everything that we offer. And as always, use the codes to healthy at checkout for 10% off.
Sean, um, you're back on the podcast. It is now spring in Montana. Finally, it is May 8th today and the grass is coming out. The trees are budding. Uh, we actually got some leaves coming out on the trees, which is nice. And um, it's my favorite time of year. So, of course, you're on the podcast because it is gardening season, ramping up big time. And I wanted you to come on here and give some of your expertise about the spring and where folks should be in their gardening year. And what's up with you? What's new with you? Where are you at in your farming season? Uh, well, thanks for having me back. Um, happy to be here. Where are we at in our farming season? We're, we're doing pretty good. We are um, trying to keep up with this spring. We went from cold, 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 long, long winter to a cold, wet spring to a hot. I mean, it was like, I've been telling people it's like zero to 60. Um, you know, like we had 90 degrees last week, I think for one day. And then it was in the eighties for like five days. Um, and we went from no greenery to just everything's popping just like in a week. And that's just so fast. It's hard to adjust. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was watering last week. Um, it really caught me off guard. I had to water our first planting of peas cause they were wilting. Um, which is not common. Um, at least for me, like I am not typically watering things this time of year. Um, unless it's like, you know, we just planted our cabbage, um, first planting a cabbage and I watered that in. But typically after the first watering in, I can get away with a couple of weeks of not watering because it's usually like today. It's nice and cloudy and it's cool and a little rain rolling through. So we are doing pretty good. Um, We had our first farmer's market on Saturday. It rained the entire market, Um, but it was kind of fun because the kids went with me and um, ran around and got wet and were cold and just did the market deal and we sold a few tomato plants and just uh it was it's actually more fun first market to catch up with all the farmers um and you know see like uh, there's a lot of Hmong farmers here in Missoula and I don't get to see them except for during the farming season and one of my uh, Hmong farmer buddies Jerry's a big hunter so we get to catch up on hunting season and see how things are going and then just catch up with all the families so that was really nice um garlic is looking really good this year our strawberries are starting to do their thing i got them mowed a couple of weeks ago my gosh that's crazy strawberries wow and then let's see what do we got in the ground right now right now we have um we have two plantings of peas planted right now i got the cabbage in over the weekend and trying to get broccoli in today And then we have some radishes planted and then our first planting of beets and carrots has germinated as well. Um, And those are all really good early spring crops for people to keep in mind. And we can go into more depth on that here in a bit. Um, And then we have a lot of wrecking still. Um, One of the downsides of my farming is that I bale on October like 19th, 20th and head for the mountains. (laughs) And there's a lot of stuff that just does not get done until spring. So we have a lot of cleanup still to do a lot of tomatoes and peppers to wreck and get pulled out and moved. 
still haven't pulled the corn yet either, which is another big task. Hmm. What does that mean? Pull the corn. So, you know, it's just dead and on the stalks. Um, oh. and there's, you know, I don't know, five, 600 plants out there. It's a, I don't know what the square is probably like 50 by 50, something along those lines. Um, and so we just got to go out there and wreck it all. And then sometimes I'll burn them on the compost pile or just throw them on the compost pile and let them rot away. Um, the pigs really like, if we get pigs this year, the pigs really like to go through the corn and see what they can salvage out of it. Are the pigs new this year? Um, yeah. Or did you have them last year? Well, we, we tend, so we cannot keep livestock here at the house because we are in the city limits of Missoula. Mm -hmm. And it's a little challenging for us because my preference would be to carry our pigs over for two seasons. So get new piglets in the spring and then have them for two seasons and then slaughter them in the fall. But because I can't bring them back to the farm here at the house, what we do is just one season. So typically we get pigs in the spring, um, Last year, I stopped by because I got them right near uh, Three Forks last year. Oh, that's right. I think we talked about that. You were coming through to get pigs. Yeah, yeah. And I came <clears> through <throat> and uh, it was actually kind of funny because I had COVID. I just oh, had that's like, right. around COVID. And I was <laughs> like, uh, well, I was dropping something off. I don't remember. I think I was dropping off plants or something to you guys. And like I had a mask on and Ryan answered the door and I was like, I got COVID. And he like took four steps back. It was pretty funny. I know. He's like, did you, did you know Sean has COVID and he brought the plants today? And I was like, oh no. <laughs> he's like, they're out in the garage. Yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't come in the house and I even wore a mask while I was uh, out. We, you know, we didn't talk long because I was on a yeah. tight schedule of Missoula to Bozeman and back in one right. swoop. Um, so what we'll do, and I haven't decided if we're going to do this or not this year, because we've got some things changing with our lease ground. So we have our acre and a half um, out towards the, uh, um, bitter river here in the valley what would be the target range area um that that property is getting sold and i'm still trying i mean we'll be okay we have a lease agreement so nothing should adversely affect us for this season but i'm still not clear if i want to get pigs um but mm -hmm. my favorite thing to do is get pigs in the spring and then we butcher them uh, right before hunting season in the fall um, and then that gives us a whole bunch of lard and uh, sausage to make um, our sausages with. Um, and then we get some of the best pork chops ever out of it. And then a bunch of hams and smoked stuff. Mm. I really okay. like And my yeah. favorite are the American guinea hogs, um, which is like the homesteading hog for Americans for the first two, 300 years, well, 200 years of our existence. And now they're, they almost went extinct and folks are trying to bring them back because um, they're a very specific breed. They're kind of small. They're based on lard, which was extremely important back in the day when homesteaders, you know, lard was a real key to life. Right. Um, and so they're smaller, they're grazers. They tend to hunt rodents and snakes. They're nice. They're not going to eat you. They're not going to bite your kids. They might nip at you now and again, they're a pig, but I've never had a problem with like them taking a chunk out of my kid. 
um, which I'm all about because my kids are always in the pig pen playing with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, they sound even nicer than a rooster. <laughs> yes. Well, oh, man. Some roosters. Holy moly. They're so aggressive. Oh, I know. Violent. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. Yeah. Well, um, that's cool. They, they eat rodents, huh? We, mm-hmm. we had a cat. Our cat died last summer and he was 17. Oh, wow. And um, we never had rodent problems at either our Washington uh, house or here. And now we don't have a cat. And this winter, just because it was so severely cold, um, we have had a mouse problem heyday. Every, our garage, even like our grill, like they were putting stuffing in the grill. Um, and you don't realize how much a cat actually kills. Uh, we, he was even an old and deaf and peeing on my floors cause he couldn't make to the cat box. He could still kill mice. And so now we are also struggling with getting an an- another animal to help manage that because, um, they wreak havoc on stuff. They go in and tear stuff up in the garage. They get into, Anything that's not, you know, sealed up pretty tight um, gets demolished. Um, I actually got one in my truck and he died in there and uh, shredded a wool hat that Ryan had gotten me in New Zealand. Um, and I didn't realize it till one day I was cleaning out the back seat of my car and I go, oh, there's my black hat. It was like under the seat. He had chewed both ends. It's like this wool. Um, uh, hat that ran and got me literally chewed through it. So now it's like a scarf. And then he just little shreds everywhere. He made a bed somewhere and I think it's probably in my engine. Um, but then I think he died in there too. And I haven't, it's starting to get better, but I couldn't find him. So I'm figuring he was in the engine block or something, but that was the first time that's happened to us since we lost our cat. Dang. So, um, getting a new just, cat too. Yeah, Ryan keeps saying that we're going to get a barn cat. No. But I know how that goes in my house. That cat will be inside sleeping with my youngest daughter. And, <laughs> you know, uh, it'll be another animal that I have to take care of. And I sound really mean when I say that, but cats are way easier than dogs for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but my old cat, he was old. And the last two years of his life, he had kidney dysfunction and he basically uh like i said if the cat box if he didn't want to go in there he would just like pee on the floor or he would spray the wall and we just had our floors redone and we had a guest bathroom you know our downstairs like half bath the laundry room was where his his litter box and everything was i mean they were like they had to rip those floors up and they were like yeah we had to like kills everything in that bathroom because he had just, God only knows where he had been peeing in there. So my thing goes like, oh God, I got to potty train a kitten and I don't want him peeing on my new floors. You know, that kind of thing after yeah, decades of sure. having animals that destroy everything. And then you have young kids. And um, so that's more my selfish. I don't want a cat and I hate cat boxes. But, and it's very cold here in the winter. I mean, we really have to have an animal that can come inside. I mean, I know cats can survive, but when it is 40 below outside, I would not expect a cat to be 
outside unless we had a heated, we do not have a heated garage. So, but maybe we will. So yeah, I think Ryan's had his fair share of trapping mice and he's kind of like, yeah, um, he hates cats. He despises cats, but he's like, I think we need a cat. <laughs> so maybe I should say, let's get a pig, but the pig probably doesn't want to, I probably don't want to have it in my um, garage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would go with the cat as much as I love our little American guinea pigs. Um, I like cats a lot. I've grown up with them. Um, oh. And I was I re- think- I'm ready for a new cat too. Our cat's mm-hmm. not very old yet. She's just a year older than the the kid or Cassius, but my oldest. Um, but she's slowing down a little bit. And I want and we just got a new puppy because our mm-hmm. older dog is slowing down. Oh. Um, the prairie is saying no. To a new cat. Yeah, I think it. I think it's because this. So, um, everybody gets excited about getting a new animal, and I. We have three dogs because we had one dog, and one year I had this crazy idea that I was going to get Ryan a puppy for his birthday from the same breeder, and so we surprised him with our male dog Boone. Well, what happened two years later? Whoops, we got pregnant. Um, because they weren't separated like they should have been. And then we had a litter of puppies. And now we have a third dog because, of course, we have to keep a dog. And now I have three dogs, which I love my dogs. Don't anybody get me wrong. But three big dogs is like they are huge management. And um, they're muddy. And you know where we live. We live out in the clay prairie. So when it rains here, that clay gets in their feet. I mean, it's impossible to get out almost unless you are literally putting them in the bath every time they come in the house. And, and you can't do that. They're outside dogs. They love to go roam. So it just, it's just a constant cleanup. You're constantly cleaning up. And then people get excited. Oh, yeah, mommy, I'll take care of this. I'll get a lizard. I'll take care of it. We'll get a new cat. I'll take care of it. We'll get new chickens. We'll feed them. Who ends up doing it? We do. <laughs> Me. Who ends up like feeding them or saying, did you do the chickens today? And they're like, oh, oh, I got to go do the baby chickens. It's like, this is why I don't want anything because nobody actually consistently takes care of them except for me. And I already have three jobs. So, you know, I'm, I'm okay with not getting a cat right now, but I think living out here in the prairie and um, with the mice and the cold weather, it's probably the best option. Um, and I just don't like the indiscriminate killing that cats do, especially when they're little, right? Like you have to train a cat, uh, what you want them to kill in the beginning, they kill all the ground nesting birds. They kill drag robins in and bludge them in your kitchen. Like, you know, there's a learning curve there, but I did learn that cats will react to praise for what you want them to kill. So if they kill a rat or they kill a mouse, then you praise them for that. And then they learn where, um, what's okay to get. So you have to start with that quite, I think start that training quite young with them so that they are not just killing everything. And, um, they, they learn that the rodents are where they're going to get like appreciation for that. Right. But, but house cats do kill a lot of things. Yeah. That's, that's Prairie. My partner's number one, argument is that they kill too many songbirds and whatnot and they do you you have to work with them you definitely have to work with them and even 
in my experience, you can limit the number of birds they kill, but you can't completely eliminate it. They will get some birds when you're not watching. Um, particularly if they're hunters, like our cat is a barn cat, you know, and that's my favorite type of cat to get because they are just hunting machines. Right. You know, they're not like the, whatever you're, you know, the cats that are kind of bred for more domestication. They're a little more feral. Yeah. Today, Tana asked me at breakfast, she said, mom, so when is it going to be 2100? And I said, oh, Wow. Um, it will, she said, is it ever going to be 2100? And I said, yes, it, it will be 2100 someday. And she said, am I going to be alive in 2100? Mm. So I had to do some math because she was born in 2015. And I said, well, yeah, you, you could be, you, you would be 85 years old in 2500. Crazy to think about. Right. And she wow. said, is Paley going to be alive in 2100 and I said yeah well she would be in her 90s she would be like 90 and she said are you gonna be alive in 2100 I said nope mommy and daddy are not gonna be alive we will be really old um you know we're not gonna make it to 2100 but hopefully I said hopefully you do hopefully you make it to 2100 and uh, she was kind of looking at me like you know it's really hard for children that age to imagine that their parents not going to be around yeah. So yeah. they kind of always give you this look like, what? <laughs> Why would I be alive and you wouldn't be alive? Doesn't yeah. make sense to me. Know what you're talking about. You're yeah. It. Yeah. It's uh it's sort of like breaks your heart a little bit to think about it, to think about, you know, age and how fast it goes by and how old that she may be 85 someday and I may not be there. But um, you know, such is life. So, yeah, yeah, that would be a tough conversation because I would, yeah, I would start crying probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when Paley was her age, even younger than her, we were in the car one day and she asked me if I was going to die someday. She had been, they'd been talking about something at school or something, I don't know what it was. And she asked me if I was going to die someday. And I said, yeah, I'm going to die. Everybody's going to die someday. Oh my gosh. She started crying and bawling and like sobbing that I was going to die. And that's really hard because, you know, just through their eyes, like that's such a traumatic thought. Right. And, uh, yeah, it really took me aback. Like, Oh wow. You know, the reliance that these children have on us and their emotional like growth and everything and for them to imagine that we are not going to be there anymore for them. Um, it's super sweet, you know, and uh, it's also a little bit heartbreaking because that's just the evolution of life. It's like, just like gardening every season, there's a season for everything. And it's hard when, you know, you think about being an adult and maybe missing all those things in your children's lives, but I don't know. <laughs> it's a big concept for children to take on. And then you get teenager and, um, you know, they, they also struggle with it, but it's in a different way. It's kind of like, you know, they're becoming more independent. They're understanding. They, they may have a, they have a better relationship with maybe what it means to, you know, not live forever kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, the the young ones. It's really heartbreaking when they respond that way. 
just go, yeah. oh, gosh. Yeah. So, um, so that's, you know, you gotta, you gotta make good bonds and relationships and yeah, like I said, I'm taking my mom to Ireland this year. She just turned 70 and it's like, you know, nobody's getting any younger. You never know what could happen. Uh, you got to have some more experiences. Um, Absolutely. But, Adventure uh, is, the, is the key to life, which is why gardening is so much fun is because it is an <laughs> adventure. <laughs> and it makes your back hurt. No, I'm just kidding. When I look out at my garden right now, it's getting green. It needs to be cleaned up. We're in that same phase as you. Like it really needs a cleanup. We have tumbleweed here. Mm-hmm. So um, our garden turns into a tumbleweed garden in the winter and in the spring, all those tumbleweeds pull in and they start coming up. And um, boy, it's so much work getting a garden ready, um, the work that you have to do outside. So Maybe we can talk a little bit about that and what it looks like to, if somebody is kind of tackling the spring, um, maybe they've got some starts going in right now, or they've got starts in their basement or like their greenhouse or whatever, and they're looking out at their garden. And what are some of the things to be getting your garden ready for at this time? Because June's coming and hopefully that's planting season. I mean, you're already planting, but you're in a little warmer climate than we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but what does well, it look like right now for getting the garden ready, the boxes ready, that kind of stuff? So I think, you know, the the first thing that I try and like coach or advise to gardeners that, you know, I'm talking to within the early spring is, is don't get, don't get daunted by what you have ahead of you. You know, you can take it in small doses. You don't have to take it all off in one bite. So if you've got a garden, a nice big garden, or maybe even a small garden that you've got to get into and you've got to clean up all the old plants, right? If you didn't clean out your old plants, you got to get your old plants out of there, get those into the compost. You got to get your, ideally, if you're doing boxes or any of your beds, try and get them turned in some way, preferably with a shovel or a broad fork. Um, and you know, I I do a lot of tilling. Um, I couldn't have the size of of farm that I do without my rototiller, um, or walk behind tractors is actually what it is because I can put multiple different implements on there, but you want to turn your soil. And then if you have it available, add compost and, um, any other like nutrients, if you got leaves or whatever, and then you can let that sit for a while until you're ready to plant. Um, you might also be having to wreck your watering system, you know, cause you got to get whatever watering system you ha- are using out of the way. So you can get in there and dig and dirt in the dirt. Um, and you know, like depending on the infrastructure that you put up, like I'm looking at our cattle panels and T-posts. They're still up from last year's tomatoes out the window here. Um, we use a lot of shade cloth for our peppers. Um, and that is primarily to keep them from sun scalding. We do a lot of sweet peppers um, and they're just, they're pretty susceptible to sun scalding. So we use shade cloth now, which is more T-posts and a whole bunch of um, uh, wine. Um, that we tie those up, we tie them off to T posts. Um, and so you're just basically going in and trying to take everything down, take down that old bee fence if you've got it up, um, and get the garden area cleared completely. 
and then work your soil um, and get it loosened up. And it gives you an opportunity to see how your worms are doing. If you've got worms, if you don't have worms, um, and that's the benefit of digging over like rototilling is that it gives you the time. It's a little slower pace that you can look at your soil and see what's happening with your worms in there. Um, and then from there, you know, just start ideally, you know, on our last podcast, we kind of talked about our plan. So if you don't have a plan, start making your plan where you want things to go how you want your beds to be laid out, your plant rotations. So rotate your beds as much as you can. You don't want to plant tomatoes or nightshades. So tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, um, potatoes. Try not to plant those in the same spot year after year. Um, The longer you can go in between planting the same things in beds, the better, um, particularly with things like nightshades or with say um, brassicas, broccoli, cabbage, um, cauliflower. And you know, a lot of that has to do with um, pests, right? You don't, you, your pest will get accustomed to the plants that are there. Mm. Um, it'll be easier for them to attack what is there. If you've got flea beetles in the soil and you put your kale and broccoli in the same spot every year, the flea beetles will just come back stronger and stronger. Um, so really, if you can, and, and if you've got the space, um, rotate your crops as best you can. And mm-hmm. that's a big part of where your planning will come in. And then, you know, ideally, if you haven't gotten anything started yet, get your seeds going. Um, we are at a spot in the year where even if it's, you know, even where you are, you could plant peas now. Peas is something that you could get in the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can start your peas in your greenhouse and then transplant them out. That's what we do. Um, I like to do that because it, it gives me a head start on the cucumber beetles, um, which are a little green beetle. And then radishes is a really good thing you can plant right now. No problem there. You can mm-hmm. throw radishes in the ground. It should be absolutely no problem. They'll germinate up and radishes are really fast. So you could even put them in a place um, where like if you got them planted here really soon, they're going to be like 25 to 30 days. You could transplant something in there like tomatoes once they're all finished. Um, So you can do a little bit of crop rotation there. You know, radishes, um, we were speaking about the Hmong farmers. Radishes is one of the things that you can also do more companion planting with because they're so fast. So if you wanted to plant radishes in with your cabbage or broccoli or something along those lines, that works out really well. Um, the monk farmers do that, or at least the one family that I like to talk to a lot, they do that a lot. And they've got beautiful radishes all year long. Mm. What is your, what is one of your favorite radishes variations? Um, I struggle with radishes because I don't really like the spice of a radish. I know some people do, but also some people just don't they don't plant radishes because one, they, they germinate and they grow really fast. So you may not be able to eat them if you don't eat a ton of radishes. And then also sometimes what dictates the spiciness? Is it the variation? Is it the water? Is it the sun? What, what is going to make a perfect radish that's edible? Cause also the other thing, I feel like radishes can dry out really easily. Um, and yeah. they've never been my favorite vegetable. So 
I mean, I think they're great for pickling. Like I love pickled radishes. Um, but like eating a fresh radish, it has to be one that's not very spicy. I just don't really like that spicy bite. Do you have any recommendations on that? So, um, my preferred radishes is, uh, the Easter eggs, which is a multicolor, um, radish that you can pick up most places. Um, and then for the milder radishes, you want to stick within the like reds and purples and white. Um, you're still going to get that spice. I'm not a huge fan of radishes either. Um, uh, that horseradishy spicy flavor is not something that even in my older age, I've grown to like very much. Um, mm-hmm. and so pulling a, cat, a radish out of the ground and eating is not something I readily do. Um, but the, the whites, the reds and the purples tend to be a little on the milder. The blacks are going to be a, a stronger, much more like horseradishy flavor, that spice that comes with them. And then another real key thing with radishes is, is harvest them quickly, pay attention to them because a lot of times you won't see them. They're under the ground and, um, they'll get big on you fast. So the larger they get, the spicier they get. So if you can Mm. harvest them when they're more the size of a marble or maybe a steely, then you're going to get a little milder flavor. Um, and then the other issue with radishes is they tend to crack if they're overwatered. Um, or they begin to get woody and dry out as they get larger. So the, one of the really things is just keep up with them. Just, you know, they're fast. So once you start seeing their leaves coming out and you've got say two or three true leaves, pull a few out and see how big they are. And if you've got them to the size of a marble or a steely, um, which is, you know, a marble of a different type, hopefully everybody recognizes that. Um <laughs> I forget that some people might, I don't know how much kids play with marbles these days. Um, yeah, our kids have t- jacks, but they don't really play with marbles very often. Yeah. So those are probably the the keys that I would give as far as radishes go. Um, and then, you know, if, you know, if you're in our camp and you're not a great lover of radishes, throw them in a salad or, or shred them so that they're more fine and, um, throw them on top of something so that you get a little less of that flavor um, all at once. That's one of the ways that I will um, eat them is on a salad or throwing them on some type of thing. Um, But they're great. And, you know, they're, you know, if you let them go and you forget about them, then just let them go and then you can compost them and don't worry about it. They'll turn into soil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like on a lot of the years that we did, very intense gardening in Washington radishes turned into like compost because we just didn't eat a whole lot of them. And, you know, Ryan back then loved to just grow lots of everything and they would just grow so fast and we would never eat them that much, but I guess you can just put them back into the soil. Speaking of compost, um, where at this time of the season should your compost be? The struggle that we have here is that it's so dry that over the winter we really have a very difficult time making compost like in our outside bins uh, because it gets so cold and then it's so dry and in Washington we had the luxury of the humidity and the rain and we were really able to in one season turn over a whole thing of compost right we could throw our cardboard in there we could throw our waste um our scraps from 
you know, the kitchen in there, the ones we didn't give the chickens or whatever. And it, we didn't have to water it. We, we would just maybe turn it here and there and we had compost. Um, here we really struggle with that. It's, it's a different setup. And, um, what is your favorite way to compost? Are you using a compost bin? Have you just built outdoor bins? Like we've built some, you know, just, um, panel, uh, pallet bins where we put stuff in that one. And then, um, you know, how, how best do you like to make compost? So I think for, um, home gardeners, my primary recommendation is just go find some old pallets. Um, and that might be a little large for, for most people. Um, we generate a ton of compost just as the way our family eats and, and whatnot. Um, so it's not usually typically a problem for us, um, as far as like the, you know, the size of a pallet, um, compost bin. And so this time of year, what you want to do is like, same thing with your, you know, your, you're getting your garden beds prepped, go over. And ideally in my mind, your setup is either two or three bins of compost or just two or three piles. You know, if you don't have dogs that are going to get into it or something, but you want to have like your older pile. So we're coming off of winter. You want to get in there and you want to turn that pile as well as you can and work into it some type of, you know, whether it's a, a grass or a hay or some type of straw or something. Now in your guys's climate where it's drier, I would be looking for wet things that you can add to your compost. Um, so if you're in a drier climate and you're having a hard time, you know, you put your, you know, whatever compost bucket out there and it just kind of everything just dries out. What you really need to be adding is um, if you're not spraying anything, your grass clippings, or if you have plant clippings from inside your house or from the garden, throw those in. Um, any type of like leaves that you can gather, just like wet byproducts that are going to add moisture and bulk to your compost. Um, and then on the flip side, a lot of people run into having too wet of a compost, which is where you kind of want to mix in some of your drier stuff, whether it's leaves, straw can work pretty well. Um, but what you're doing is your oldest compost, uh, you want to turn for this spring. And then what we would do is if it's a year old, we'll get it all turned and then we'll move it into its own bin and allow it to just break down on its own. And then we start a new like fresh pile where we're adding in all of our scraps and all of our food scraps and anything coming out of the garden. Like I just tossed a whole bunch of winter squash. Um, I'm not, I'm not the best salesperson. So um, <laughs> just threw out a lot of winter squash that rotted in my basement. Um, but anything that you've got um, and you know, you can add lots of different things. And as long as you don't have like dogs that are getting into it and getting sick or anything, like add your food waste in there. Um, and then you can start, you know, layering. So your new compost pile, you're going to throw your food scraps in and then throw in some hay or straw or grass clippings. Um, grass clippings, in my opinion, are fantastic. As long as you're not spraying your yard for dandelions or something along those lines. Um, cause you don't want those, those herbicides and pesticides in there. 
No. What about cardboard? I'm always a little apprehensive because I don't know if cardboard is totally organic. Like, what are they? Are they making cardboard or spraying it with stuff? Like, um, in Washington, you could add cardboard and it would just, over the winter, it would just turn into paper. Like, it would just just disintegrate. Here, it does not disintegrate. Um, You have to shred it, rip it up, get it wet. And it still is like, even a newspaper, Literally, you have to shred the newspaper You, if you're going to put newspaper in. But like, I always think about that. Like if a newspaper, it's got ink on it and print on it. And like, doesn't cardboard have chemicals in it as well? Um, my biggest reservation with cardboard is the adhesives. So if you're using okay. cardboard that is that is layered and is kind of the thicker cardboard for whatever boxes that we ship in and whatnot, that has got adhesive in it. Um, and, a, and some glue. And I, I really shy away from using cardboard, even for mulch. Um, now, I don't know if there's organic cardboard out there, but you can find thinner cardboard that is not using adhesives. It's just like okay. a layer. That can be okay. Usually the dyes, and I don't know about cardboard, but with newspapers, I want to say my memory is, is that the dyes are fairly benign. They're using um, pretty old school dye methods for the ink and it's not that harmful to people. Okay. You know, you're holding it with your hands um, and, and I could be wrong about that. I don't, but that's, I mean, maybe I'm being overzealous about that. I know people have used it for a long time and it's, you know, um, it is like a paper medium that you can put out there and it can add, like you said, like the straw or the hay or whatever it can add depth and, um, uh, fiber basically to the compost. But that's again here, it's much more difficult to break down because we don't have, we have no humidity in our air here. And if we do, it's mainly after a rainstorm or something that it's not, it's not something that's consistent. Um, what about animal manures? So, uh, we have a ton of chickens and we just got a new chicken house and we had to uh, clear out a space. So we had lots of dirt and that was all in the chicken pen, lots of manure. We piled that up in a separate pile in the garden right now. Um, do you add, man- what type of manures would you add to your compost? Would you not add to your compost? Do you add that separately into the soil? How long does chicken manure, and we may have talked about this before, but how long does it need to age before you should be adding it? Because I know it's what they call a hot manure. Um, And what are some other options that you feel at this time would be good for adding that? So if you've got chickens and chicken like waste from like their pooping and their bedding, um, I would totally recommend like when you are doing your new compost for this season and you're bringing your waste out, throw a layer of that chicken manure and, you know, whatever you're using for their bedding on there. And that will break down fantastically. And if you give it the entire year, it'll cool off enough um, that you can um, move it you know, into its own pile, let it break down for a while longer and then use it. You want to be thoughtful about using chicken manure because it is so hot. Um, same thing with bat guano. Um, but if you've got some type of animal byproduct and add it into your compost, it can be phenomenal. 
And if you've got lots and lots of animal byproduct, you can just do both. Add it into your compost to help the microbes in the compost. Um, and then you can make separate piles. Like if you've got a lot of horses or a bunch of llamas, like Mark Livesey and Amy have, um, yep. you know, you can just make multiple piles. And so you can pile all your manure in one spot and you, and let that break down slowly and then also use it in your compost as well. Mm. I don't think you can go wrong from like doing all the above. It's just important with chickens, primarily chickens and bat guano, um, that it's hot and you have to keep that in mind. And you can do testers. Like if you've got compost that you want to throw in to your garden, but you're a little unclear about it, just do a quick tester. Find one of your smaller starting cells, throw a bean. Beans is usually one of the really fast, nice indicators that a lot of the composting like companies will use to test their soil. It also will show oh. if you have any um pesticides or herbicides in your soil pretty rapidly as well what happens with the bean it'll grow funny um i don't know exactly because i haven't done this specifically but it'll grow weird um the leaves will come out kind of all crinkly and and turned in um and if you are getting manures from outside like maybe you're going to get some from a local person um, particularly with horses, if you're getting horse manure, be very diligent about the questions you ask them and where they get their feed from, whether it's, if it's seed free, it's probably being sprayed in some way. Um, and you need to find out what kind of spray it is, because if it's anything basically beyond two, four D it won't break down fast enough. And there will be, um, I mean, I have one bad experience our second year here at this farm, um, Frank's little farm, where this guy brought us a bunch of manures. I asked all the questions. I thought we were good. We put it in the garden and it hammered me, um, particularly that first season. And we, we squeaked through, but. I like, think we talked about that in one of our first gardening series yeah. we did. Um, we were told we have thistles out here on our property and they want us to spray our thistles. But the uh, pesticide that they use to 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 kill the thistle does something to the grass, and so if the horse is eating that chemical in the grass, then their manure has it in them, and you put it in your box, right? And then your stuff doesn't grow. And like, so we were like, no, we're not spraying our thistles. I mean, we don't really use that grass for our garden. We don't really have grass per se. We have this like tall Montana prairie grass. Um, and we have to have sod here if we're going to have grass. It's, grass is very hard to grow in this um, clay soil. But um, we did some research on that. And that was a lot of the experiments that we saw as people were using that manure and they didn't realize it. And it, they were actually buying the hay even too and putting it in their garden beds. And then, or the horse was eating this hay. And then they were using horse manure and they were putting that in and they were seeing that their plants were growing differently. They were stunted and having problems or whatnot but um i think that that is a difficult navigation these days we you know the amount of different uh um mechanisms of action that can happen right you've got an animal eating a grass that was sprayed for a thistle that has a chemical on it you don't even think about that like the cows they're going to poop that out and they don't process it maybe it goes on the poop and then that poop's going to fertilize and what does that do to the growth of other things? Um, and you can imagine if it's 
inhibiting a thistle from growing, that it's going to inhibit other things from growing, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of these pesticides and herbicides are flipophilic. So they attach to fat. Um, so I'm guessing if the animal's eating it, flipophilic, it's going into their fatty system as well, just like us. Like we don't want to be eating lots of herbicides and pesticides because they go into the fatty tissue and then they mimic hormones, estrogens, all that kind of stuff. And so we can also see that. Um, I, I have to say that in the healthcare world, because I do a lot of hormones, I do a lot of hormone analysis and I'm I mean, obviously working with a lot of middle-aged people where hormones are naturally going to be lower, especially menopausal women, like, yeah, these are natural stages of life, but we're just seeing hormone dysfunction in younger and younger people. Uh, I read some article the other day about women going into menopause earlier. Um, Men, I can't tell you how many men under the age of 30, I test their sex hormones and they are ridiculously low or they have high estrogens and people always ask me, well, why is that? What, what is this? What, what's causing this? And I think it's, it's many different things, but the use of these chemicals that are lipophilic, they are going into our bodies and adjusting our steroid hormones, right? And, and uh, these steroid hormones are fatty hormones and from what I understand too, plants have lipophilic, they have their own hormonal system and lipophilic fatty molecules as well. And so these chemicals are affecting the plants and then we are eating the plants. Um, we're also eating the animals that eat these plants. And so there's medical, there's many different layers of exposure right? And then over time, you kind of build these chemicals up in your blood. And the amazing thing about the body and probably also like a plant is we have defensive mechanisms to fight against that. So plants themselves have detoxification, um, you know, pathways, they have uh, defense pathways and we have the same thing. So, you know, it's actually quite remarkable the amount of things that we can be exposed to and eat and in our daily life, breathe in, et cetera, that our body actually has pathways to get rid of that, right? Our body, if it's doing what it's supposed to do, is actually supposed to be getting rid of that. But I think just the advent of all these very kind of complex uh, chemicals makes it harder and harder. So those detox pathways get kind of clogged up. And depending on your genetics and any personal history that you have, your detox systems may not be getting rid of that as well. So people are always like, oh, well, you know, kind of like our HOA. It's like, well, it's, a, it's an invasive weed. And so you need to kill it. And that's the only way to get rid of it, you know? Uh, okay, what are the downstream effects of like just trying to kill a thistle? Um, and it's, it just, it seems kind of overwhelming. Right. And like, even I said, like now I'm paranoid about everything. Is there adhesives in the cardboard? There's prints in the newspapers. There's like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I don't know how I got into this, but I, I think when people ask me about how is this happening, why is our health so messed up? Why are my hormones so screwed up? You, you can't, um, just pin it down on one little thing because we have so many exposures 
Um, even if we think we're eating healthy and we're organic and we're growing our own garden, um, you don't grow your own cardboard and you don't grow your own hay usually unless you're a farmer and you're growing your own hay, right? You're relying on other people and their practices. So, uh, yeah, I think about. folks today, I think, it, you know, like, unless you have the opportunity and the time, right? Like the time to delve into these things, it's very difficult for people to understand like how much we are inundated with so many different chemicals. And I just, I think it's really difficult for people to keep up with the breadth of knowledge it takes to understand how many chemicals are in our lives and surrounding us day in and day out. And then how to like deal with that in a like, not a like conspiracy theorist, like crazy way, but just in a practical like life way. Um, you know, like your, your laundry detergent or all the like scents that they are putting into all the chemicals and the sprays and the everything that everybody's using at home, like all of that stuff is like endocrine blockers and there's just so much. Um, and so what I try and like coach people at and just, you know, everyday life, not that I'm some type of life coach or anything, but is just trying to take it again, a step at a time, trying to weed things out um, and just simplify life, bring things down to a much more like simplistic way it's one of the reasons why you know like we enjoy this podcast i enjoy i love your guys's podcast right because it it goes after all the stuff that is important to me so like starting your own garden is a great first step but there's a lot more to go with it right and you know exercise we were you were mentioning like whether or not you're able to process out those toxins one of the ways that your body is able to help get rid of that stuff is through exercise sweating like getting all of those like body functions moving and you know cranking and getting that liver going and getting everybody like driving to get the bad stuff out because we get so much of it in um, and then finding like access to better meats and better foods, whether or not you're growing that yourself or whether you're getting that from somebody local and organic is not necessarily the beat all end all that it once was right. Like there right. are plenty of organic labeled things that were grown that probably have encountered pesticides or something along the way or the packaging has it in it right it's it's in a plastic package that it was off gassing and then it got into your food um and i you know i really try and cautious people not to like get crazy about it but just take it one step at a time right be thoughtful you know critical thinking skills lots of different information be willing to research, be willing to listen to a lot of people that maybe you wouldn't normally listen to, but are, you know, giving out information that helps you tackle it. Um, because nobody knows everything. There's too much. There's just way, way too much for some, one person to know all the little facets of what's affecting us. And then you have to figure out what works for you, right? Like you got to figure out what your body can handle and what it can't handle. Um, you know, I think that, um, I think the cool thing about living today is the amount of 
a technology that actually allows us to see things in our DNA, in our genetics, just even getting a blood draw and the things that you can learn about your body um, is amazing. Like the technology, uh, like DNA testing, for example, you know, when I got out of med school, DNA testing was like, it was mainly genetic testing that you did on people that maybe had family history of severe diseases or et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, DNA testing is affordable. It's less than $500. Not only that, you can have an entire program or basically life map of what your DNA is telling somebody. Now, does that mean that you're going to express all those genes? No. Does that mean that you're that that all of those things apply to you now? No. But it's amazing for helping people to understand their genetic preponderance to things, how to support it, how to make better choices for themselves so they can see. You know, some people can handle alcohol better. If you have certain genes, you cannot handle alcohol. You should not be drinking alcohol. It's not a good thing for you. Your detox pathways can't support that, right? Like we can get so much information. However, that's use these are there's so many useful tools now for us uh, to give us information but i think what we need more of is we need to return a little bit back more to the simplicity of the foundational things and what i mean by that is probably the the biggest thing that i miss about washington is my is our gardens and how easy it was to grow food there. But also that little piece of property, you know, we had a half acre, we had a small piece just like you. I mean, we did not have a huge piece of property, but we had this half acre that we cultivated over two decades and we knew the soil. We built that up. We learned everything we could about it. We, we, you know, Ryan was really passionate about it. And so was I. And the simplicity and the love that came from farming that tiny little piece of land and the food. You know, a lot of this podcast came out of the simple things that we enjoyed doing that made us feel just just created a better life for us and and how we felt and and probably the way we've aged, just a number of different things in our lives. Um and you know it's Moving to Montana was a choice that we made just based on pure uh, environment for one, um, amount of people, um, simplicity. Again, we didn't. We had simplicity on our little piece of land, but when you left there, <laughs> traffic and people and stress and just it was like too much. You know, the rain was brutal eight months out of the year. I couldn't do it. But here it's different. Here it's a lot more work. Here, that simplicity requires that you have to be pretty due diligent. And so depending on your geography, depending on how much you want to work, depending on how much time you have, how much dedication are you willing to give to these simple things? So it was easier in Washington to do it, but it was still really hard work. But it was something we looked forward to because the fruits of our labor was like exponential. Here... The fruits of our labor sometimes are like that tiny little tomato that doesn't split or get blown off the thing. It's it's rewarding, but it's it's those simple things. And it's also like the thought, if I think back to when we had our gardens and just the amount of food that we procured and we harvested and we saved, um, those things, you know, those are things that I really, really treasure. And that 
there's no fancy DNA testing. There's no, you know, you don't have to, you just have to pay a lot of time to that, to learn that, but it's so rewarding. And so it's like those foundational things of food, sleep, relationships. Um, and I think the technology is so useful, but it's also somewhat gotten us away thinking that life, we can make life simpler through these things, but really it comes down to, it's like kind of these basic things. I think this is why homesteading has become so attractive to people is a lot of homesteaders are like these people that were living in cities, totally stressed out. We're not growing their own food. We're not connected to the land, had no concept of it. They started doing it and it just changed their health and it changed their families. It changed their mental state, you know, that hard work and then learning the plants, learning the animals and how that connection is so important. And in medicine, I see it, it's, it's like a linear movement between how we're losing that. We're losing the relationship with the land where we lo- losing a relationship with our food where like you said, you just go to the grocery store, you buy food, it's wrapped in plastic and like you cook it up and you eat it. You don't have any relationship to that. And you see this linear movement with the poor health and the hormone changes and the depression, anxiety, and like all the things that are so rampant in our culture now because there's this parallel disconnect with these simple... um, these simple staples of life that do require hard work. Like I said, when I look out at my garden right now, my back hurts because I go, <laughs> oh my God, got so much work to do out there, right? Mm-hmm. But on those days where I do it, it's like so rewarding. It's like you're, you feel so good. And when you eat that food, it's even so much more rewarding. So I think the whole purpose, even though Ryan and I, at this point, we are not master gardeners, I mean, anymore, we don't garden the way we used to. We don't have the time now because of our businesses and we don't have the same land, but that is something that kind of brings us back down to earth, literally, like just brings you back down and makes you realize like what's really important and what is more important than the things you put in your body to support your DNA, right? Like your DNA is reacting to your environment. And so you need to clean your environment up. And that starts with your food. And um, that's why it's important to understand these pesticides, herbicides, like why is this type of lifestyle important, you know, and not just, um, I think we, I think we are losing that in our culture because of the technology. There's like a love hate relationship. And so, I don't know how I got on this, but I think that if I can encourage in anybody, you know, that's struggling with their health is I, I really feel that getting their hands in the dirt and learning about the food that they're eating, right? Like even just growing the radishes, a few peas and this kind of thing. Um, it really can change people. Well, it can change, change you. And I I think it helps you to make healthier choices, you know? Um, Absolutely. The other thing I despise is plastic. Have you drawn, have you, so I don't know if you live, you know, is Missoula really windy like we are here? 
No, not like you guys. Okay, so we have horrible wind here, pretty much from Bozeman, you know, Livingston over. Bozeman's not as bad, but we've had a lot of wind this winter. The amount of garbage that is blown on the side of the freeways. Like you're driving through Bozeman, which is like one of the most expensive zip codes in the country now to live in. Okay. And it looks like a garbage dump on the side of the freeways. What is most of it? Plastic, Mm -hmm. plastic bags, plastic wrap, plastic containers, plastic. It's just like everywhere. And I'm like, Oh my God, plastic is polluting us. Yet you go to the grocery store, everything is wrapped in plastic. Everything is in plastic. It's so like, oh my gosh, it's like a downward spiral that we can't get away from, right? Our landfills are full of plastic. The the streets, like the wind comes and just blows things everywhere around here. And it just ends up in the fences along the freeway. And you see it and you see all the plastic from construction sites and and everything else, you know, and, um, that to me is a little discouraging that to me, like, this is just one little town. This is one little 30 mile stretch of road where there's just plastic. And I think about all the places in the world, you know, overrun with plastic and the oceans overrun with plastic. And people always ask me about hormone health, try to eliminate plastic in your life. Like literally, it doesn't seem like you can do anything, but just that little thing, you know, will make a huge deal. Um, and that's what I noticed too, about just contamination. There's just so much plastic in the environment that just doesn't break down. And so, um, I think being, I think being conscious of that, uh, just in your daily little things, you know, the lunch kids, you're, you know, you make your kids lunches, get things that are reusable right? Like try to buy food at the farmer's market, try to get things that aren't in plastic. Like, yeah, it seems really hippie dippy to take your own bag to the grocery store, but that actually helps to not have plastic bags that are sitting in the fence on the side of the freeway. Right. I, I mean, Seattle outlawed those, those bags and people were all up in arms because their freedoms are being lost. Oh my God, please outlaw, outlaw those bags everywhere. Literally like, it's horrible for our groundwater and our food and our everything, but our hormones, that's yeah. my rant so, on like I mean, contamination. Ideally we wouldn't have to outlaw things. We would just get it. Um, unfortunately we're, we're working against forces that don't want to eliminate plastic because it's cheaper for their bottom line. Um, but plastic is one of the things that we are going to have to deal with as a human race right because it is worldwide and it's got to end um it's it is unbelievably destructive um in what is taking place with plastics um and you know it's going to be a great challenge it's going to take us probably i don't know how long it'll take us but you know what we can create a million jobs cleaning it all up um so we just no. i was like okay i'm ready to start a foundation uh, to clean up garbage on the side of the freeways because I mean, I guess we all have garbage and there's going to be wind. And so we need to clean this up, but then it's like, okay, but then what do we do with all that plastic garbage? We just put it in a plastic bag and then we take it to the landfill. And then it's like, it, it seems like a kind of a cycle that's very difficult to understand. Like how, what do we actually do with this plastic? And I know there's lots of companies that are like recycling it and making things out of it, doing that kind of stuff. Um, really forward thinkers, how to utilize this as a resource, uh, 
that's not going to continue to contaminate. But um, I, I don't know why it bothers me so much when I drive down the freeway, but it seems to. And then I think to myself, so what, do they only wait till the prisoners can get out of prison? Like, do they bring them and have them clean up the garbage? And, and like, who's, who's working in the community here to like instill some that, not only that, but then like, it seems like to their, the regulations on, I know plastic has changed some and I think our world is so convenient. Like, I don't know how we can totally get away from plastic. I mean, when I look around my room, you know, I think of like how many things are in plastic, have plastic in them in general, right? Petroleum products. Um, It's pretty much everything. And so, but as far as like gardening goes and stuff, that's, that's one of the things I think that's a good reason as much as you can to grow your own food because it hasn't been put in a plastic thing and then shipped across the country in a hot truck in a plastic container and then sits in a warehouse or whatever in a cooler or whatever and then sits in the grocery store and then you ship it home take it home like the plastic that your food is sitting in it hasn't just been sitting there for like a day it's been sitting there for sometimes weeks right months maybe even but I don't know. This is one of my rants. I don't know how to fix it. I wish I had the brain, the technology. The can't Elon do something about this? Come on. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> time and intention is how we're going to fix it. It's time and intention, and we're uh, getting there. People, we're we're going to get there. I'm, you know, I'm a very optimistic person, but um, I I think humans we're gonna we're going to rally against the corporations and the folks that are, you know, kind of shoving these, these, you know, I guess I can't say ideas, but these products at us, you know, nonstop, we're going to check it. It's, it's getting to a point where we have no other choice um, unless we just want to see ourselves get even more unhealthy and even, you know, like even, you know, if we want to see things get worse, then we won't do anything, but I don't, I don't see that being the case um, because it's going to, you know, it's affecting our fisheries, right? The plastic in the oceans is affecting our fisheries um, and it's affecting all of our lives in many, many ways. And the main reason that it doesn't change is because of economics. Um, and, you know, we like, we'll just stick with America as a society. We need to decide how much we want our economics to influence our lives. And this isn't an argument against capitalism. This is just an argument that if you allow your economic system to dictate every piece of like society and every aspect of it, then you're going to have a society that looks like ours, right? Whereas if you make decisions as a society and a culture that no, we're not going to allow our economic system to affect every aspect of our lives, then we have an opportunity to start carving it out more and being like, no, we need, you know, agriculture can't just be about money. It's got to be about feeding people and health of the nation, right? We can't just have our economic system influencing our healthcare system because 
we don't get a healthy society. What we get is doctors and pharmaceutical companies that are looking at the bottom line first and foremost, and then killing massive amounts of people to reach a certain dollar amount. Um, and so, you know, as a society, my belief is, is we've just got to, you know, make those decisions um, as far as like how much we want to allow our economic system to influence the different facets of our society. Um, and that, you know, that's going to be a tough challenge, um, but we're going to take it on here soon. Um, it's definitely one of the things that I'm hoping to get after in the future. So are you going to tell people what you're doing? Yeah, I can tell people what I'm doing. Now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Earlier it changed, but um, I'm running for city council here in Missoula. Um, I am looking at some ways to transition out of farming slowly but surely and um, looking for ways to get directly involved in supporting my community that has supported our farm so well. And I'm going to do that by... Uh, getting on to city council, ideally. I'm, I'm gonna run for city council or I am running for city council. Um, and again, I'm a very optimistic person. So I believe wholeheartedly in Americans and I, I have, you know, like I don't listen to a lot of what takes place out there, but a lot of the uh, vitriol about how terrible our society is and how bad the young generations are and all the, all the negativity and hate, I don't see it. I don't experience it. Most of the people I come in contact with on a day-to-day basis, they don't see it or experience it either. Um, and it's time that we start focusing on those messages and give ourselves more opportunity to just be good people and start working on these things because it's possible. It's all possible. I think the media, the media's job is to promote fear which is the lowest frequency emotion there is, right? Its job is to keep you there. And so it reports on the extremes. We see the extremes in the media. We see on both sides the extremes. Uh, but like the majority of people fall in the middle. Like most people like are just trying to like support their families, get through their lives, like have some happiness and try to figure out what that is, you know? And the extremes are what the media needs you to be worried about, right? The left, the right, um, the crazy, the the like, whatever. And there's always going to be that in society. But for some reason, we've decided that that's the important thing to report. And I just think that that's just to keep people scared in a way. Um, because it's, it's easier to stay in that lower frequency of fear. Um, and when you have a large group, a large population of people in that frequency, you can sort of dictate whatever you want to them. Um, and if we take this full circle, is that we do know just from research, we do know from health statistics, we do know from um, a lot of different paradigms within our culture that when you live a little, you live a more balanced, simple life and you take care of the necessities like love, shelter, food, healthcare, people thrive better. So we're not really all that complicated. And just like the soil has microbes that feed off other microbes that need certain things to grow a plant, right? 
just like the sun shines and just like the tide goes in and tide goes out, we are very dependent on mother nature. And that's one thing that we can't forget. And as we get more disconnected from mother nature, I think that that's where we start to see more of this disconnect within ourselves. Yes. And that's a good place to round this out and just encourage everybody to get out there and get some sun and get some soil in your fingernails and in your mouth and eat it a little bit and get your garden rolling. And it's, it's rejuvenating to get out in the spring weather and work in your garden. Um, and mm. nothing else, it'll help you forget about perhaps all the things that are troubling you for a little while. Uh, and have your kids go out there with you. Yes. Get your teenager who's definitely going to roll her eyes at you and give you a huh. <laughs> get her to go out there and fork out some compost, clean out the chicken bin again, you know, teaching them some work ethic. Um, and those are the things that I remember from a kid. I, my parents gardened and my dad was really big into food. And I remember those years. I remember my dad's garden. Um, I don't have a ton of memories about my younger life, um, but I remember my dad's garden and I remember, I remember camping. I remember going canoeing with my grandpa. I remember, uh, you know, going on hiking trips with my family. I remember being out on the reds, you know, with my stepdad's family out in nature, out just watching animals and simplicity and for the hunters out there i mean these are probably memories that everybody has they remember their first deer they remember the camaraderie they remember the happiness that they felt being with their family and their friends and being out in nature and we are so lucky in montana like you know when you travel someplace else even in the united states and you see how people live sometimes you know they just they live in urban jungles. And so nature is so important to our health. It is, you know, it's vital for everybody. So that is, I think that's the power of a garden is you can make a garden anywhere, even yes. in the urban jungle. And you can have that piece of nature that you need. That's so important for your, every, every system in your body. And if you live in an urban jungle and you're listening to this, there are gardens and there are all, there are a lot of different things that you can access. Um, well, maybe not in every city, but a lot of cities have community gardens, have different places, particularly now, right? Rooftop gardens. Um, so it's possible for you to get something rolling, uh, we talked about that a lot last year when we were doing podcasts. Um, one of the podcasts we discussed that. Mm -hmm. um, but just, you know, don't think this is just for rural America. Like you can do this in the city too. Yeah. Yeah. And the city has its benefits as well. Oh, yeah. I love, yeah. I love going to the city. Me too. I just don't want to live there. <laughs> we just got back from Florida and, you know, here's the first day on vacation. My daughter, oh my God, mom, I love it here. It's so cultural. There's so many different people here, you know, like, yeah, there's a lot more going on in Sarasota, Florida than there is in Bozeman, Montana, you know, as far as culture goes and shopping and just the people and just, um, obviously the environment's much different. <laughs> um, but by the end of the seven days, 
Oh, mom, I can't wait to get back to Montana. I can't wait to get home. We live out in the country. I mean, most of the time my kids are home and I think to myself, gosh, am I abusing them by just making them stay home all the time? And you realize when you live in that environment and you go to a very busy environment, no matter what the culture is, no matter what excitement it gives you, there's something about that excitement that kind of wears you out after a little bit. And if you're not used to living in that, it's like, oh my God, I can't wait to get home. I can't wait to get back to Montana. I can't wait to get back to that. So I feel like sort of proud that I've gotten my... I've, my kids have been able to experience that and ha- know that there's a place they could go that's quiet. And if they decide someday to go out and live in the city and and live that kind of life like I did when I was 19 and lived in the city for 20 years, they know they have a place to come home to that's got that stability and quiet like I had with my mom here. And Bozeman come home and sleep for three days and just come down a notch. But you can feel it in your body. You know, I think that's another thing we didn't talk about is just the stress of environments and how they um, can challenge our nervous system and how we can manifest that into health issues too. Because when you live in a high energy environment all the time, um, there's definitely stress hormones and stuff that are working. And when you're younger, you might be able to manage those better. But as you get older, it gets harder and harder. So we can also see definitely hormone dysfunction in environments that are highly energized all the time and stressful as well. So if you live in areas that have high amounts of stress involved with them, that's going to change your health as well. So I think that's also why plants and gardening and stuff, they decrease cortisol. Yeah. Down or Being in the garden. Energy. Yeah. Decreases. Putting your hands in the soil decreases cortisol, decreases the stress hormones. So um, I think that's also something important to just tune into. If you are a really stressful person, you don't feel like you have an outlet, maybe going and getting in a community garden or just growing some plants and stuff and putting more plants in your home um, can, can bring that stress relief to you as well, as far as health goes. This is obviously nothing our audience here that's listening to us does not already know, but it's something to remember that um, plants are God's creation to us to, to remind us that we too are growing and changing and that uh, we need nurturing and love and water and food. And um, those are important things. So. Yes, and we all need that reminder. Every, it doesn't matter if you've been in gardening or agriculture your whole life. Um, you know, even as a farmer, I get caught up in my busy, you know, like I'm coming into one of the busiest times of the year and it can be really hard to slow down, downregulate, enjoy myself and what I'm doing. Um, so we all need that reminder. Nothing else. We're hopefully reminding folks of, hey, slow down, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you don't have a garden and you want one, you can come to my house because I got plenty of work. People can come out here and <laughs> help me. I'm getting to the age now where I ask for more help. <laughs> Nice. If you guys right. lived closer, I would have taken on. Oh, a greenhouse. I, I'm still, I, I still think about it. I'm like, what kind of greenhouse would survive those winds? I, we I would need just an underground. We need an underground greenhouse. We we've, we've actually researched it. Ryan's looked into it quite a bit, and I have a, a a patient client who she has a sustainable ranch. Um, she's doing a 
the uh, sustainable soil farming, ranching, whatever that's called. I can't, the name is not coming to me right now in Jordan. And I'm going to have her on the podcast because she's got a great story about how the struggle they've had to convert their generational cattle ranch into a regenerative um, cattle ranch. Very interesting. They built an underground greenhouse because they live in Jordan, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, out in the flats and it's windy and it's got harsh weather. And um, that's really, I think for us, we could get a building, like a, a, a building greenhouse. We can't have anything. We'd have to have like a, a shed building. We could do that into a greenhouse as well. But it gets so hot here in the summer. Like you, the ventilation, we have no shade. I mean, you'd have to put shade cloths over and even that, like your ventilation would have to be really good. Um, but I think the underground would be the best because you've got the insulation of the ground. Of course, that's what's going to work. And yeah. well, uh, that would be the ideal. But I'm often wondering, like, what else could, you know, what would work? Would it work? Would this work? Would this work? Um, well, I've looked at just some of the little Amish greenhouses. There's a guy in Norris that builds these Amish greenhouses. And they're, you know, the Amish, they just build wonderful wood stuff. And then he he's basically really cute wood greenhouse frames. And then he puts the... It's either glass or you can get the really thick, like, I don't want to say plastic, but they create a greenhouse for you that way. And we've looked at that. And the hardest thing with him is he's so like, his stuff sells out like that. So you have to put your order in and then you have to wait for them to build it. And that would be a small greenhouse. That would not be like what Ryan was used to with our other thing, but that would give us a place to one, have starts. Um, that's not the basement. And then also to just um, have some tomatoes and, you know, for our lifestyle, um, that would be enough. And then of course it would look really cute, which I'm more concerned about because it's just some gaping hole in the ground. I'm like, oh my God, what is that going to look like? But no, I think, oh, that would be so cute. We'd have like a little house. I of course want a she shed. I want one right next to it. That's like a she shed that I can go out and have my own house in it. <laughs> but um anyways yeah greenhouses that was on our list this year but uh summers go by so quick in montana we do struggle with the gardening thing and you know priorities um i think we also have this urgency our children are growing up and there's this weird urgency like oh my gosh we have a kid that's just four years out of being an adult and i mean we've been here five years now I mean, it goes by really fast. So we kind of feel like we need to spend all the time we can doing, having experiences with our kids. And the garden is an experience, but I mean, the garden used to dictate our life before. Yeah. yeah. We couldn't go on vacations. We had to like, it's, it, we, we understand that. So I think part of it is a subconscious need to just really experience our life with our children right now and not be too uh, nailed down. Um, too much. That's why I don't even want to get a cat. Because <laughs> I'm like, wait, it's another animal I got to take care of. Um, so you know what I mean. I think I think that's more of our impetus right now is that we see that happening in our lives, and um, you know, it's just a new phase. When they were little babies, and you had to be home, and you're breastfeeding all the time, and you didn't really want to go in public, and you didn't want to put them in car seats, and you wanted to be home. Gardening was awesome. You could go out and yeah, garden, sure. throw the baby in the garden and, and you could do that. But now they want to do stuff. They want to do this. They, you know, Ryan wants to go hiking and hunting and have experiences. And, um, 
the season is short here. So someday when I live somewhere warm, like Costa Rica, I will have a glorious garden. <laughs> Mark my words. <laughs> I'm working indeed. on it. I'm working on it. I'm no longer the Arctic princess that I used to love to be. So, well, if you Anyways. can fly into Costa Rica, I'll come visit you guys. Yeah, well, I'll work on that too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the the gardens, the place we stayed uh, in February, they just—I mean, they had cucumbers that were like a foot long. Yeah, you know, and it was February, yeah. and their tomatoes and their peppers and the kale, the lettuce. Uh, I mean. It was really cool. So they can grow all year round. They have wet season though. I think their rainy season, they get pretty flooded out. So maybe you can't, you get too wet, but uh, this time, you know, the winter is, is amazing growing season down there and it's got the humidity. It's, it's got all that. It's a jungle. So it's got heat. Um, but yeah, let's just have you give some simple tips right now for where you think people should be. Um, because I know where we live, it's almost planting season and you've already started planting. So where should people be kind of right now in their spring gardening and what should they be looking forward to a little bit here? Okay. So I think for most people, you should be definitely trying to get your garden ready for planting if you haven't already started. Um, and you should be turning your compost. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just to go back to that a little bit, um, I wanted to just make sure to reiterate with compost, it's very important to turn your compost regularly. So just as a follow-up mm -hmm. from our compost discussion, turning your compost regularly is how you get it to break down fast. So if you can do it every other week, your compost will break down much faster. If you do it every month, that's good enough. Beyond that, you're, you know, things will get stagnant. But um, so getting, getting things prepped. Ideally, you have your seeds by now for what you want. If not, get, get your seeds. Um, and then, you know, start, try and develop a plan, figure out what you want to do, and then start to try and execute that plan. You can start planting a lot of stuff right now. You can start with peas, radishes, chard, kale, almost anywhere I can think of in the U.S. You could plant all of these things. So broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower, beets and carrots. Um, those are all things you could be putting in the ground right now um, to get, you know, going for yourself. And then there's, you know, we're, we're, we're coming up. So we're in the first of May which means we're coming up on the time when we have to start thinking about all of our warmer crops and getting those in the ground. So whether or not you're into the tomatoes or peppers or tomatillos or eggplant or melons or cucumbers, zucchini is an easy one, but all of those are coming up really soon. Um, we're going to do most of our plantings are usually in the third week of uh, May so that we're trying, we're trying to be ready to hit all of those things in the ground by the very end of May or the very first of June, depending on, on our weather here. Um, so cold crops, get them in the ground. Now, warmer crops start making preparations and thinking about those things coming up in the future. Um, your onions could go in the ground right now. Your potatoes can go in the ground right now. Um, 
And that's probably all the things, strawberries you could plant right now, or, you know, get your strawberries peeled back and give them some fertilizer and they'll start kicking fruit out for you here by mid-May, depending on the variety. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And then, oh, I see a, I got a farm stand customer. I haven't opened the farm oh. stand. Um, it's all right. It's early. It's only been open a day or two. <laughs> They're used to me. Um, and so that's kind of the trajectory you're on. Um, corn, if you're liking corn and corn is something that you want to try. Um, remember, it takes a lot of space and you want to try and plant a block of it. Um, I know some folks will find some success with like putting five or six plants in. But if you really want to get successful with corn, try and do a block. You know, if you've got 10 by 10, 20, you know, the bigger the block, the more success you'll have. Um, but just trying to think in those regards and then, you know, think about your watering, anything you want to change about your watering system. Do you want to upgrade some stuff? Want to get some timers? Do I want to go over to a drip system? Whatever it may be. Um, you know, you want to start planning those things out. Take them in little chunks, take it weekend at a time, whatever time you have. Um, you know, don't try and overdo it. Uh, get your garden boxes if you want to do that. Um, that's a good thing for now. Um, but you, you still have plenty of time. And, you know, if, if you're going to be starting all of these plants yourself, you want to get on that. Um, and, of course, if you don't want to start all your plants, look in your area. A lot of us have small farms and farmers markets. Go to your farmers market and support your local farmers like me that are growing plants. Um, and to that end, I will give my uh, one main piece of advice that I give to gardeners who are buying plants is look at the root structure in the plants you're buying. Don't mm. look at the top, right? Like if you've got this giant, like, and I run into this every year, ran into it this weekend, there's people selling huge, giant tomato plants, right? Huge. They've got flowers. Some of them may be little fruit on there. The chances of your yield and production are going to be low with that type of plant because they're more than likely root bound, they're more than likely stressed, and it's gonna be very difficult or it's going to take them a long time to recover from that stress, just like we do. So that's gonna really hurt their production. So if you're buying plants to the best of your ability, buy plants that aren't overgrown and that their roots are not filling up the plant. Um, we work really hard to make sure that the tomato plants and the pepper plants, all the plants that we send out, they're not root bound and they're not going to be root bound or we coach you to get them in the ground as soon as possible. Mm. I think that's one of the actual problems when you go to somewhere like Home Depot or somewhere and people are buying their plants is a lot of those plants are, the roots are like they're root bound and they look great on top, but then you plant them and they just don't do much. So I think yes. that's something people do not think about. Yeah. Well, it, it's not, it is not common knowledge within the garden community. I would even say within master garden classes, this is not something that gets highlighted as far as, uh, you know, my phrase is roots create fruit. Like mm. good, big root structure is how you get good production. So to the best of your ability, and you're going to be limited on this, right? Like if you're forced to mm -hmm. go into the nursery, you got to take what you can get. Um, but pop those plants out of the pot and look at them. 
and see if you can find something with, with roots that aren't as fully developed. Um, it'll make a very big difference in your overall production throughout the year. Um, and in, in particular, broccoli, cabbage, and cauliflower. They're very, very, very susceptible to stress. And if they are stressed at any point in their like early life cycle, they won't produce. Um, cabbage might, you might be able to do a little better with cabbage, but more often than not, you'll put them in the ground. You'll get a broccoli head. That's the size of like a silver dollar and you'll get this tiny little cabbage or the cabbage will flower and go to seed. And then, um, you know, one of the things you can do with wrecking your garden is as you wreck your garden, pull the plants out and look how big the root structure is, you know, tight root ball that never grew out and away from where I planted it? Or do I have a nice wide mat of roots? And it was, oh, it was a struggle to get this plant out of the ground. Um, those are some things that you can work on, like looking at from your old garden. Mm. And you, um, but look at those roots to the best of your ability and talk to, you know, if you have the ability to go to markets and farms and go talk to them, they'll tell you ideally the same things. And ideally, you'll get the plants that you want um, with the root structure you want. And if you're, um, you know, starting your own stuff, that's fantastic. But keep in mind, don't let them get root bound. Pot them up if you need to. Um, there's no substitute for sun. So if you can have your seedlings outside, great. Mm-hmm. If not, under lights is just fine. Not trying to knock it. There's just no substitute for sun. Right. Um, and keep your lights as close as you can so they don't get as leggy, right? They'll, mm-hmm. they'll they reach for that sun uh, or that light and they'll get late. And those are probably the best tips I can give, you know, like at this point in time. Okay. Awesome. Well, I think that's great. Great information. A lot of it might be reminders for people, but it's important that, you know, gardening costs money too. If you're buying plants and you're spending money, you want to not be buying plants that are not going to uh, do what you want them to do. So, or are going to just, you know, kind of a waste of money. It's like, and just, just watching for that. So I highly encourage definitely going where the farmers are. Um, also those plants where like you, you're taking your plants right from your farm and going there. A lot of these big box stores, you know, those plants are being trucked in and God knows where they're from, right? God knows where they were planted. So local, again, going back to just local community, supporting your local community, um, I think is one of the best ways to go. I appreciate you. And Um, I know everybody else that listens to your podcast appreciates it as well. Well, thank you for having me, Doc. I appreciate you and Ryan and everything you guys do as well. Um, I I, I love your guys. I love Hunt Harvest Health. I think it's phenomenal. And I hope you guys continue to reap the success um, from it. Well, that just keeps motivating me to do it, even on my days where I say, gosh, I just don't know if this is worth it. Um, it reminds me that it is and it's helping people. And it's, it, if nothing else, it's giving back to the, to the community that we love. And, um, you know, I love education. I love, love helping people learn new things. So grow a garden and read more books. There's my tools for, (laughs) there's my feedback for this podcast. (laughs) Absolutely. Here, here.
I'm sure when you think about Ryan, you probably think about his long, scrappy hair. You probably think of his facial hair. Maybe you think about gritty films and big deer. And maybe you think about a moose. I don't know. Uh, maybe you think about how successful he is and how hardworking he is, how humble he is. I don't know. I could go on and on. Well, I can guarantee you that when everybody envisions Ryan in their head, including me, you think about Stone Glacier. Uh, yeah, Stone Glacier is basically in every single clothing ensemble that Ryan wears. And I'm not even kidding you, down to his boxer shorts are Stone Glacier. So Stone Glacier finally has been kind enough to make our very own Ryan Lampers collections page. Um, if you head over to stoneglacier.com forward slash collections forward slash Ryan dash Lampers, you will find everything that Ryan likes to wear. And this is really helpful because I know Ryan gets tons of DMs about what's this jacket? What's this hoodie? Where'd you get that vest? Blah, blah, blah. And he just can't answer all of them. So if you're um, looking to get something from Stone Glacier in the clothing department, you want to gear up for hunting season, um, you again can go to stoneglacier.com slash collection slash Ryan dash Lampers, and you can find everything that he has on there. And just by buying through that link, you help to support this podcast and all our future endeavors. We owe a lot to Stone Glacier. They've been amazing to us. They have literally supported everything we've done. And so we um, are happy that they are now giving Ryan his very own collections page. Go check it out.